And please stand as Cornelius comes to read to us from the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Reading from Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is in the one you, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I think I mentioned before that Ecclesiastes is one of those books that's really hard to preach in kind of the context of an ordinary worship service because you either want to take phrase by phrase and sort of take it apart and look at all the other references in the Old Testament, in the Proverbs and other places, and even in the New Testament where we find parallels to the words that Solomon is speaking here, or you kind of just take the book as a whole and say, well, he ends with a call to fear God. And actually, he does that several times through the book, and that's one of the themes that keeps getting chronically developed, and we just keep coming back to it. God is the one you must fear. But as we noted a couple of weeks back, one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind when reading and studying Ecclesiastes is that this book of ancient Hebrew wisdom comes to us in the context of Solomon's life. The things that we're reading here tend to not make sense if we don't understand who Solomon was and the things that were happening as he journeyed through his life that would lead him to make some of the conclusions that he makes and to end with a word of repentance. And it's hard for us to do that because the stories that we've heard of Solomon throughout our lives are usually just the good parts version. We don't hear so much. You know, you'll, every now and then some pastor will note 700 wives and 300 concubines, and usually we try to make kind of a joke out of that. But it's no joke when you read it in his context in 1 Kings. It's actually quite an indictment against the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and it's difficult for us to grasp that because he began so well. 1 Kings... I just realized I don't have the... Okay. <laughs> I usually look for that before we begin. Thank you, Evan. Evan. 
As I said, Solomon began so well. First Kings chapter 3, verse 3 tells us that Solomon loved the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to do, right? God's law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. And of course, we know that the Lord appeared to him when he was young, saying, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. That's God's word to Solomon, not somebody's opinion about how wise he would be. And still more than that, 1 Kings 9, verses 1 to 5, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, so roughly 20 years after the Lord appeared to him the first time, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now the next two verses have a bit of a qualifier, and it's a little bit ominous, but we need to remember when we read promises in Scripture, sometimes they don't come in a completely unconditional sort of fashion. So God promised Solomon that if he would walk in God's ways and keep God's commandments and statutes, then God would make his name, his presence, to abide forever in the house that he had built for him in Jerusalem. But then he goes on to say, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then, and this is every bit as much a promise as what he said before, then if you turn aside, I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So God made a promise. If you are faithful and obedient and you keep my covenant, then I will be with you and I will stay in Israel. I will make my name dwell in that temple forever. But if you are not faithful and obedient, if you turn aside from following me, here is my promise. I will cut off Israel from the land. I will destroy this house and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And then in short order, we come to 1 Kings Chapter 11, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Remember the qualifier. God said, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes, but go and serve other gods, then I will cut off Israel from the land. And here we have it, for when Solomon was old... His wives turned away his heart after other gods. He turned aside from the living God. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. 
because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So as well as Solomon's beginning was some 35, maybe 40 years later, as he draws near to the end of his reign, what has become clear is that somewhere in the course of time, his heart has turned. He's turned away from that love, from that devotion that he had to the living God when he was a young man. And he has begun to follow the things of this world, specifically all of those wives turned his heart, which God had said that's what was going to happen. He said, if you don't turn their hearts away from their false gods to the living God, then they will turn your heart away from the living God to worship and serve these false gods. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, not only did Solomon build idols for his wives, Solomon offered sacrifice to the abominations of the nations. He allowed some of his offspring to be thrown alive into the fire as offerings to those gods. Which is to say he forgot his own first principle, something that he had written down in Proverbs 1-7 when he was much younger, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Of course, this makes sense, because in contrast to the idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Psalm 14 tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And understand, fool is sort of the ultimate Insult would be one way of saying it, or the ultimate condemnation that Scripture applies to people in in any context. There's a lot of wickedness described, a lot of different words for sin and unrighteousness in both Hebrew and Greek. But in summing those up in both the Old and the New Testament, God says, those who follow those things instead of following me, Those who despise wisdom and instruction, those who say in their heart there is no God, they are fools. Notice also this declaration is in the heart. This is not something that people confess with their mouth. This is not limited to those who would say, well, I don't believe there is a God. I recently heard a Hollywood actress and comedian receiving award, and I can't repeat what she said about Jesus in receiving this award other than she held it up and she said, this has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. This is my God now. And then she went on to say things that are too blasphemous to be repeated even as a quote from the pulpit of a church. And this is the change in society. Remember you used to watch the Grammys or the Oscars and almost everybody would get up and take the statue and say, first of all, I want to thank Jesus Christ. And she's doing exactly the opposite. This award, this statue, is my God now. But it doesn't have to be so overt or obvious. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so there are many, many people in the world who would say, well, you know, I I believe in God, or... I believe in a higher power of some kind. But what they say with their mouth is not consistent with the story that's told in their heart. Fools, those who say in their heart, there is no God, 
are those who, according to this proverb, 1-7, despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, a heart that refuses to hear the wisdom and instruction, the word of God, is a heart that is turned away from God, regardless of whatever the mouth may say. Thus Solomon, who without doubt would have claimed to believe in God throughout his life, came to deny that profession in his heart as increasingly he turned to the things of the world rather than the wisdom of God in the search for meaning. There's sort of a light version of this where we start making lists of the things we want to do before we die. And we start seeking meaning in how many of those things we've checked off the list before we get to that day where God says it's time now. We're looking for meaning in the things of this world, in the experiences of this world, in the relationships that we may have in this world. Solomon explored all of those things according to Ecclesiastes, and he found that they were vanity, they were mere vapor, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. But I believe one of the reasons why there's so much tension in this book of Ecclesiastes is because Solomon really did know better. God had blessed him. He gave him wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And not only did God bless him with wisdom and knowledge and insight into the world, he gave Solomon both riches and honor to such an extent that no other king then or now could compare. But like so many people, both before and after him, like so many people this very day, Solomon seems to have become so enamored with the gift, with the blessings that he came to ignore the giver. In the scriptures that come between what we considered last week and what has been read for us this morning, Solomon appears to be sort of setting up worldly objections to the conclusion that he came to in 3.14, which was, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. In other words, Solomon had reached this place of saying, well, God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Everything that happens in this world happens because God has so ordered all of his creatures and all of their actions that everything must work together for the good, for the salvation of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and everything must work according to his plan so that history ends up coming out the way that he has always intended it to come out. Now Solomon looks at some of the things in the world that some people would throw up against that idea. He spoke of wickedness, both in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness. I think the place of justice would be the throne and the place of righteousness would be the temple. And Solomon is saying when you look at either of those things, you see wickedness where you would expect something else. He spoke of the hopelessness of life in light of the inevitability of death, something that has been driven home to us quite recently here. That day comes for all of us, 
And Solomon looks at that and he says, what difference does it make really if you've been a king or a ditch digger when in the end you're just going to die and no one will remember you anyway? I heard someone recently say, at the end of the game, the king and the pawn both go back into the same box. And that's true. He spoke of oppression and toil and envy as if somehow those things might lay question to the idea of the sovereignty of God. And at the end of chapter 4, he wrote, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went, the youth, from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who will come later will not rejoice in him. And it's not specific, and I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but I really think this is a reference to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, whom God raised up because of Solomon's sin. This poor and wise youth, described originally as a servant of Solomon, would eventually take the northern kingdom from the hands of Solomon's son. Solomon would try to kill him, though first, because God had said, this is what's going to happen. This man is going to rise up and he will tear the kingdom from you and from your sons. Solomon was not successful in killing him, but still Jeroboam's line would end in ignominy. Nobody would remember him or rejoice in him. God had revealed that to Solomon in 1 Kings 11, and I think that's probably what led to his conclusion here in Ecclesiastes 4. This poor young man was going to arise from prison, from poverty, and become a king. And then in 4.16, surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's a vapor. It's a breath. Outside the church and Jewish synagogues, nobody remembers Jeroboam the great, the first, who took the ten tribes from Solomon and established a nation in his own right. It led to that remembrance, but it also led to an admonition to Solomon's intended audience. I believe that his original audience was his own son and his sons, Rehoboam, and the others that he gave birth to. And also beyond that to us, in light of this reality, that this is a vanity and a chasing after wind, this jaded old king went on to speak about worship in the text that Cornelius read for us just a few minutes ago. He said, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Some of us may remember singing a little song when we were children, oh, be careful little feet where you go. I think that's essentially what Solomon is saying, be careful. When you go to the house of God, be careful not to turn aside when you are making your way to the house of God, which in our day, according to the New Testament, is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Solomon is selling his sons and us when the time comes to worship the Lord don't let anything pull you from that purpose. Guard your steps. Make sure they lead where you need to go so that you can indeed worship the God of truth. Don't get sidetracked by lesser concerns. To draw near, is to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. 
for they do not know that they are doing evil, wrote one who was very well versed in doing just that. One who toward the end of his life, for all of his supposed wisdom, and for all of the proverbs that he had written and the Psalms, offered the sacrifice of fools over and over and over again. The sacrifice of fools in the house of God, when he went up there to offer the sacrifices prescribed by the law, but his heart was not there. The sacrifice of a fool who, as I said before, offered his own children in sacrifice to the abominations of the Canaanite nations. He said, be sure you go to worship and be sure when you go that you are drawing near to let God speak. Because to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. But he goes on, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Which I think is kind of Solomon's way of saying God is God and you are not. God is the boss of me. God is the boss of you and everyone else. He is in heaven and we are not. He is infinite and we are finite. He is holy and we are not. He is everything that the Bible proclaims him to be. And not only that, in heaven he sees and knows all things. And I think this speaks to us today because sometimes we act as though the Bible was merely an ancient religious text that has long been left in the dust of human progress. Like here's this book and the newest parts of it are a couple of thousand years old. What does it have to say to us? in light of all of the things that we have now learned, this great knowledge that we have accumulated. And yet the psalmist tells us forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. Therefore, as Solomon wrote, let your words, let our words be few which is a solemn injunction for those who would approach God, whether in worship or in prayer. Sometimes we have this sense that someone who can pray a lengthy prayer is somehow closer to God. But Jesus said something similar to what Solomon says here in the prayer that he taught to his disciples or in the introduction to that prayer in Matthew chapter 6. He said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles, the ethnos, the nations do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And going back to Solomon, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, much activity maybe, and a fool's voice with many words. And Solomon is saying, I think, when you approach the living God who dwells in heaven, who created all things, who sustains all things by his powerful word, it might be more important for us to actually listen to what he has to say than to offer up all of our words as some sort of a sacrifice of fools. And speaking of words, verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. 
pay what you vow. Remember the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So a fool can make a vow to God and not be concerned about paying it because as far as he's concerned, it was a meaningless thing to say in the first place. It's one of the reasons why swearing is forbidden to us. We are not to swear by heaven for it is God's throne or by the earth for it is his footstool. We're not to swear in his name. We're not to say, by God, I will do this. Because actually, in our breaking of God's law on this matter, we're actually nullifying the promise because the fool is saying in his heart at the very same time, there is no God. So how can I say, by God, when in my heart, I really don't believe that there is. God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And again, Jesus picks up on this when he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mean what you say. Anything more than this comes from evil. Which should go without saying because, well, verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. If I were taking time with this, we'd go back to James and we'd see how the tongue is a restless evil, a fire that is itself set on fire of hell. Solomon says, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Remembering, of course, that God had promised to do exactly this. To destroy the work of Solomon's hands when he appeared to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. So I'm saying everything that we're reading in Ecclesiastes had to be comprehended in the structure, the framework of Solomon's life. God had said, but if you turn aside from following me, you are your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house, the work of Solomon's hands, this house will become a heap of ruins. Solomon seems to have forgotten that at some point. It seems like so many people were praising him for his wisdom and his wealth that he forgot where all of those things had come from. He forgot to give glory to God. So many people were telling him, Solomon, you are absolutely awesome, that he forgot that the wisdom that he was displaying in those decisions had come from the God who gave it to him as an act of sheer grace. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The dreams that we dream, the plans that we make, even if we are able by some miracle to bring them all to fruition, they're still just vanity. Nobody will remember in 500 years. And the words that we speak, where words grow many, there is vanity, a mist that vanishes away. And so Solomon comes to this conclusion, but God is the one you must fear. We saw that's where he started in the book of Proverbs, early in the book, chapter 7. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's something that gets repeated in that book. And this is now the second time that Solomon has brought us here in the book of Ecclesiastes 
This is the second time out of several that he's going to bring us to what will be the ultimate conclusion of this book. Fear God. God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must reverence. We sometimes draw a line there and say, well, the fear of God is not fear and trembling like terror. It's reverence. It's worshiping him with awe. And that's true. God wants us to fear him in that way, to reverence him for who he is and for the beauty of his holiness. But a day will come for those who do not fear God in that way when they will fear God in the other way. And Solomon will make that point too at the end of the book. There is a day of judgment coming as we saw next week. So God is the one you must reverence. God is the one you must honor. Guard your steps then. Make sure they lead you to the place where you know and worship the true and living God. Let your words be few. Jesus said God knows what you need before you ask him. So determine to listen before you speak. And do not let your mouth lead you into sin because in this broken world we struggle to keep the words that we speak so easily But the beauty of it is, as hard as that is for us, it's easy for God. The promise of God stands firm. So Solomon says, let us draw near. It's true, God is in heaven and we are on earth. But that's the thing that the Lord Jesus Christ came to fix through his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. He came to close that gap for those who would come to him in faith and would acknowledge him as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. And for those who do believe, for those who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, even though God is in heaven and we are on earth, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on, saying, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, just as Solomon exhorted, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what we do each time that we come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship him. When we gather as a body, we draw near to him. And as we draw near, or as we have drawn near this morning to listen to his promise, we also have the privilege of drawing near once again at the table of the Lord. As we do, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. May we pray. Father, if you had left us in our sin and our unrighteousness, we would have to tremble before you and call on the mountains to fall and the rocks to cover us to protect us from the wrath of the Lamb.
but because you loved us with an everlasting love and you set your grace upon us and you called us by name and you made us your own, we may come before you with reverence and awe, acknowledging that you are our Father, but also that you are the living God, the God who rules the universe in your sovereign power and majesty. Help us, Lord, to draw near today and every day of our lives to listen to your word, to let your word frame the wisdom by which we live our lives in this world. And Father, especially this morning, help us to draw near as we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ to participate in his holy supper, that, Father, we may receive there the grace that you have promised to us, and that, Father, we may be drawn to you, and as we are drawn closer to you, we would be drawn closer to one another as well that you may be glorified in us and through us and in your church now and always, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.